come to this beautiful passage in the Word of God that we've been looking at already for a couple of weeks. This passage is so important and it's so rich and it's so deep. We don't want to miss anything that is here. And very often as we study the Bible in our church, we look at it intently and rather deeply, um, verse by verse or section by section. And so um, this is one of those areas that is so deep, it, it requires a bit more than one Passover. And uh, so this morning we, we are going to continue on from where we looked last week um, and uh, just continue. So um, take your outline. If you don't have your outline, I want to encourage you to print it out and look at it. Um, this will really help you follow along, especially I want you to see a graphic that I have here in just a moment. But let's first remember some preliminary things before we read our main text again and then look deeper at it. So some preliminary and background reminders. Number one, for those of you who are new to us, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul who is in prison in Rome to a church at Philippi a church in the, in the city of Greece. It's a, it's a city of Greece called Philippi. And the church is under persecution and the apostle Paul is under persecution. But even though they're under persecution, they have also these other spiritual things going on both in Paul's life and in the life of the church. So the church is dealing with unity issues. The church is dealing with, with proper doctrine issues and they're being persecuted from the outside. But in the midst of all of this, this letter is often called the letter of joy. Because the Apostle Paul is showing us that life in Christ raises us beyond our circumstances. Our circumstances don't dictate our joy. It is Christ who comes and shows us the grand picture, the grand scheme of things. And when we are in him, we are safe. And when we are in him, we can have joy knowing of everything he has promised in the, in the things to come. Not only in this life, but even far more in the life to come that he has made promises. So this is a letter about joy in the midst of trouble. Number two, in this section that we studied last week and that we're studying this week, Paul is pushing back against the Judaizers. Fill that in. That's uh, a new word for some of you. What is a Judaizer? Um, they showed up teaching heresy. So Paul goes, he plants the church, he gets them going, he moves on to the next place, he winds up in prison in Rome, and so years later he is hearing that these people came in behind him, they started teaching false doctrine, and what was their false doctrine? Notice this, fill this in, first bullet point. They were preaching a distorted message of what we call Christ plus. They were teaching Christ plus. You need Christ but you also need some other things. It's Christ plus theology. Now, what was it? Look at the next bullet point. In that day, it was Christ plus a return to adherence to the Mosaic law. That was the not just the Ten Commandments, but that was everything that went around the, the sacrificial system and the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But when Christ came, laid down his life, fulfilled the covenant perfectly, we come into the new covenant of Christ's life and his death, his blood, his sacrifice for us. And so what we want to see here is that in Paul's day, people were coming and saying, oh, you, you need Christ, but you also need to do these things. You still need to be circumcised. So if you were Greek, if you were Roman, if you were Italian, if you were a Spaniard, you know, they'd say, great, you've accepted Christ, and they have a knife in their hand, they say, come here, uh, we need to make you fully a Christian. Um, because the only way to be fully a Christian is to become a Jew first, because Jesus was a Jew, Jesus was from the chosen people, this was the, and so we're going to make you like us, and then you can be like Christ. Well, that's, that's just patently false. That goes against everything that Jesus was teaching. He was the fulfillment of the law. The law is perfectly fulfilled in him. And so we run to him for the fulfillment and for the relief from God's wrath. We find our safety in him, not in anything that we do. The law was given to show us that we need a savior. And so um, in that day, it was the Mosaic law. In this day, 
we see very often the same type thing. It's just in being religious. There are some Baptists or Presbyterians or Assemblies of God, but whatever, various Christian denominations that seek to be very, very religious in what all they do, in being spiritual, in, uh, in being moralistic. And so if it's a very spiritual person, they think, well, I, you know, I have Christ, but I also have all these things that I do that are very spiritual. All of this can be associated or called cultural Christianity. It's not the Christianity of the Bible. The Christianity of the Bible is, is that you need Christ alone. You need faith in what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. And so we see that Paul is pushing back against these people that came in his day, and it's very helpful to us because the same messages are being said very often in our day. People are missing that salvation is through faith, grace alone, that's God's unmerited favor on us, and we get that through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, look at number three. This section, which is chapter 3, verse 7, really through chapter 4 and verse 1, I want you to see this, is perhaps the high point of what I'm calling intensity of this letter to the Philippians. It is, it is the climax of the intensity. This is where, this is where Paul um, is, is lifting his voice the most uh, as he writes. Or um, when someone was reading, if they were really catching the, the heart of Paul, they're going to see the greatest energy in these, two, in these two peaks. And I want you to see them, the intensity graph. Chapter 1, he starts off saying, hey, I love you guys. I miss you guys. Um, everything about the church is found in Christ. I'm hoping the very best for you. That's a, that's a very important chapter. No, all of this has to do with the same importance, but I just want us to see the intensity level that goes on. In chapter 2, we see one of the most quoted passages in all of the book of Philippians. There's many of them that are quoted in our Christian day, but the whole section where it describes what Jesus did for us is a massively important passage of Scripture. Many have said that's perhaps the climax of the book of Philippians, and I agree that the, the example that we have in Christ um, is shown there. And notice this, that Christ's example at that peak is in the context, and this is just below the, the graph, in the context of church unity. So it's not merely talking about what Jesus did for us, but it's talking about what Jesus did for us in the context of, hey, Philippians, you all need to serve one another. You need to love one another and care for one another. Lay down your lives for one another. You need to be unified. Don't allow disunity to disrupt what God's kingdom is doing in your hearts while here on earth. And so he's saying, look to Christ as the example in that. Um, very often that context of those precious verses that are describing that Christ leaves the halls of heaven, he comes, becomes a man, he becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, we must keep that in the perspective that Paul meant it, um, that I believe the Holy Spirit through Paul meant it for us, is that we are seeing the importance of loving our Christian brother, our Christian sister, the body of Christ, as Christ loved the body of Christ and laid down her life for her. So that should be a very convicting thing that we not only learn about salvation in Christ, how he comes and lays down his life, but that that is an example for us and that we're called to be like that and we're called to be like that toward the people around us. And so important context to that first great climax, to that great um, peak of, of uh, emphasis. But as we go on through chapter 3 into the section that we've now been studying, we see this and notice this in the highest peak there, the highest peak of intensity, I believe, in the letter is in these passages, in these verses that we're studying right now. He's saying, knowing and having Christ by faith alone is everything. This is everything to us. This is where we come to our own resurrection from the dead. This is where we come into eternal life. And it's all found in Christ. It's not found in us. And so notice this, and I'm going to show you in the next few minutes why we would say the intensity, the language, the, the emphasis. It's almost like we can hear Paul's voice getting at a higher pitch and a perhaps a louder volume as he is pursuing these ideas. 
And what is the context of this second really big hump in the, um, in the intensity or this really big um, uh, peak that is here? Chapter 3's peak is in the context of false teachers and doctrine concerning salvation. And so that is something for Paul to get upset about. That is for something to become very, very emphatic about. I mean, if they get the doctrine wrong of salvation, they're lost forever. I mean, if this is the bottom line of what we really say we believe, that's very, very important. And so if Paul should raise his voice at any point in this, if Paul should become more colorful in his descriptions and more emphatic and, and declarative in his statements, it should be on what does it take to really know Christ and what does it take to really be in Christ? And so, and so that is the, the context in which we find ourselves. You can flip the page over there and notice here that Philippians chapter 3 verses 2 through 11, which where we've been studying, is one of the most significant statements of the doctrine of salvation. We kind of just said that. We said that last week, but I want you to make sure that you get this. It reveals the internal work of God in a truly repentant and believing sinner. That's what this is showing us. What does God do to save us? How is it that someone can truly come to knowledge of God that leads to eternal life? We saw Paul's list of religious accolades that do not bring salvation. So he goes through the list. You know, I was a Jew among Jews. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was trained in all of the, the highest levels of everything. And I, and I did this both from birth by, the, by that which was endowed to me, uh, by my parents and by my setting around me, but I also chose this as an adult. And so if anybody can claim to be a religious person, he's saying, I can be a religious person. I'm at the top of the top. But... I take all of that and I abandon it for Christ. So number six, we saw, Paul's, we saw Paul abandons his own merits and clings to Christ alone for salvation. And so there are some, there are some more key observations that we want to make this morning in verses 7 through 11. I've already mentioned the first one. Number one, notice the growing crescendo of intensity. The growing crescendo. That's, that's what we mean by coming up on that peak that is here. And it's for a good purpose. It's interesting. It's all in a most unlikely place um, or an unlikely lingo. It's all in the lingo of accounting. And so we often don't think of accountants as very emotional, right? We often don't think of accountants as um, um, very passionate about um, many of those things just because they're study, they're steady, they're numbers oriented. They look at what do the numbers say and where are we with that. I'm not saying they're not passionate people. They just don't tend to be on the scale of extreme expression. Um, they tend to be understated. They tend to be very analytical. Um, they tend to be um, very factual in the way that because the, we often say the numbers don't lie. Um, obviously, you can make numbers lie, but, but they don't when you look at them honestly and correctly, maybe under gap rules. So here we want to see this, um, that this language of the crescendo intensity is put in terms of accounting. Notice this in verse 8. It says, indeed, I count, there we go, I count everything as loss. Accountants deal with what are loss and what are gains in this. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, again, accountants deal with things that are worth, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. We keep seeing these words, loss, rubbish. I mean, excuse me, loss, count. And then we see that he considers them as, as a complete loss. In order that I... Another key accountant word, gain, in order that I may gain Christ. And so let's look at this. One of the ways that we know that this is such a crescendo is because of the very interesting beginning of verse 8. The very, you see on your page there, the verse 8, what is the first word in that verse? It's the word indeed in the English language. But it's hilarious the way this translates out. 
The word indeed is actually five Greek words or parts of words, and I've outlined them there. There's a conjugation, a particle, a conjugation, a particle, and a conjugation. And roughly, this is what all of those Greek words at the beginning mean. It says, but truly, therefore, indeed also. So the Apostle Paul is saying that I've, count, you know, I've seen all of these things. If you look at verse 7, he's saying, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss that I may have Christ. And then he says, indeed. And he says, but truly, therefore, indeed, also, look what comes next after that in verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Notice these extreme words. The word everything, the word loss, when we talk about loss, that gets our attention. Surpassing, that's a very colorful word. This is something that goes beyond, it blazes past. He suffered loss. Again, the, t- the term all things. And he counts these things as rubbish. So they're trash, they're garbage, they have no value. So he's saying, all of my earthly works, all of my pedigree, everything that I have to offer God in the world, I realize that that's in the garbage can. I abandon it to what it is. It's worthless. It means nothing to us. We looked at that a little bit last week, but we must meditate on this church family. We must really think about this because this is a major deception for us. Very often in our day and time, either right here in our own church or people coming to our church or people in society around us, we have these underlying subconscious values that we put on maybe how religious we are or how good we are or what good we've done. And we can, we can begin to become um, just very discreetly, deceptively um, just convinced that there are other things in us that have great value that God should be proud of or that others should esteem. What we see in this is that all the esteem goes to Christ. What we see in this is that if we have any good in us, it is solely because of God's grace and his mercy, his forgiveness and his love, his correction and his training of us, all in godliness through Christ Jesus. It's all through Christ. So Notice the crescendo of of the intensity of this. This is an important point. This is why we would preach another message circling back on these ideas. Number two is also very important that we see in this passage. It's the hugely important doctrine of something called imputed, fill that in, imputed righteousness. This This doctrine of imputed righteousness is made very clear in this passage. And we see it primarily in verse 9, but it's all through everything that's here. Look at verse 9. It says, and that he would be found in him. That's Paul saying, I want to be found in Christ, not found in myself. Look what he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from keeping the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, not just through faith in itself, There's some people say, well, you just got to have faith. When you ask them, well, what do you have to have faith in? Well, and some people will actually say, we got to have faith in faith. You know, faith in faith. And it's a very nebulous thing in their mind when you get down to it. No, what is the object of our faith? What are we actually believing in? That's a very important thing to God because he is supposed to be the object of our faith. It is Christ and his work on the cross, which is what we are to trust in, what we are to believe in. I mean, that is the agent that saves us. And so that's which comes through faith. Look what he says, the righteousness, and look at where this righteousness comes from, not from himself, but look at the end of this verse, the righteousness from God. And then this interesting phrase that depends upon faith. So We need God's righteousness. He's holy and perfect and just. We are sinful and limited and very finite in our our thing. We are very mortal in our flesh. We are very mortal in our lives. We need his immortality. We need the righteousness that that only he can give that, that brings to us eternal life. 
and we want to see where this comes from. In Genesis chapters 13 and 14, we see uh, the father of our faith, Abraham. We see his worship of God and God's blessing of him through the high priest Melchizedek. Very interesting figure um, in the Old Testament. Very important figure in the Old Testament. Really, what I believe is a representation of Christ in, in a very powerful, blatant way. We see, we see the, the Christhood um, of, through the priest showing up in the Old Testament before Abraham. Notice here with me what we see. In, chapter, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, and here's where we see Abram believes God and God gives him righteousness. Those two things go together. Abram believes God and God gives him righteousness. Look at this in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham, verse 3, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house shall be my heir. He's saying, I have no children. Whatever you give me, God, is going is to go to someone else. It's not in my house. Look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So God speaks to Abraham and says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. I love this in verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, the number of the stars. If you are able to number them. He's saying you, you can't number them. There's so many that are there. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Look at verse 6. Abram believed God. Abram believed God. And when Abram believed God, that he would be his shield and his reward, notice this, God counts that to him as righteousness. Now, this is an extremely important statement in all of the Old Testament that starts to show us how God saves us. And it is through belief. It is through faith. It is through trusting in God. It is through looking to him. Here we see that God imputes or you can fill in another word for impute, is he, abscri he ascribes or maybe even assigns righteousness because Abram believed God. It wasn't anything in Abram himself except belief. Notice Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. It is quoted four times in the New Testament in explanation of true salvation. Romans 4 explains it in depth. That would be a great thing for you to do this afternoon or this evening, is to go and read Romans chapter 4 and see how this story of Abram, who would be eventually called Abraham, how this story of this man of God who trusts in God and who is assigned the righteousness of God, who's given God's righteousness, it comes to him how? Through his good works? No. It comes to him through believing in God. It comes through faith. And so we also see it in Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 and James 2 23. And so notice nowhere is it more explicitly stated than in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. This is where we see the doctrine of imputed righteousness so very clear. In verse 21 look what it says. For our sake he, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, to be sin. So God the Father makes Jesus sinful. This is amazing. That sounds, that almost sounds like an anathema. It almost sounds like you should never say that, that Jesus was sinful. No, but that's, that's part of the salvation of God. And that's what you need to see here, friends, is that for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. He had never sinned. There was no injustice. There was no impurity in him whatsoever. He was sinless, and yet God made him sinful. And look at the reason why God did it. So that in him, that is in Christ, we might become, 
here's that phrase again, the righteousness of God. And so God pours all of our sin and listen, all of his wrath upon Jesus Christ. The perfect sacrifice, the innocent lamb of God takes our sin upon himself and in doing so he takes the wrath of God upon himself and so that which shouldn't be becomes. It shouldn't be this way. But that's exactly what happens. And so we see this great mystery. This good, the Bible calls it all kinds of things. The great mystery. We, we see this as the great exchange that God would come and make this transaction for us. Notice this and fill this in. This is all about the exchanged life. This is Christ's holy life in exchange for my sinful life. This is, the, this, is why we, this is why John Newton would write the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. How did that happen? It was through the amazing grace of God that God would pour out his wrath upon Christ instead of pouring it out upon me. Now notice this. There's two things that this does. And when we see the imputed righteousness, when we see the exchanged life in this, this solves the sin problem that we have because Christ takes our sin to the cross and to the grave and then he overcomes it. You see, the debt is paid by God himself. That's who pays the debt. It's God. I love sharing the gospel in that way. When, when, I, when I'm talking to someone about what does it mean that Christ died for our sins, and I, and I explain the, the doctrine of the Trinity just a little bit, I love to be able to say that the one who came to take away our sin, we were waiting on some earthly Messiah, but it was God, God who came to die for our sins. It was God who came to take it upon himself. I mean, how can you ascribe uh, in any way, um, anything other than glorious, merciful, gloriously merciful and gloriously gracious, so great a God. And so he comes, he lays down his life for us, and this solves our sin problem. Look at Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wage of sin, the payment of sin is death. Jesus takes that sin for us. Notice that this not only solves the sin problem, but this shows the love of God. This shows that he is indeed, the motivation behind everything that he does is his love. Romans chapter five and verse eight, but God shows his own love to us. Do you see that word? Circle that right there. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So why did God send Christ to die for our sins? It was in part to show us how much he loves us, that he would take his only son and sacrifice his only son for us. I mean, who does that? I mean, I, I wouldn't do that, but my God would do that for me. Um, I, I want to be more like him, I guess, if I had a son, he'd be nervous. But I mean, I, it, it, the picture is, is that God shows us his love for us and that we are called to be like him. I want us to read the, one more, the passage one more time and then gain number three and number four out of it. Um, and then I have some questions that I really want you to think about. Look at page three, if, if you would, with me. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Remember these accounting terms here. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Look what he says. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. You remember that, that thing of imputed righteousness comes from him, from our belief in him. It's from faith in him. Look at verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible 
I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, I want you to look at verse 10 and 11 one more time. Look what he says. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And then this curious phrase, and may share his sufferings. Now, very often in Christianity, we we only want to know about the resurrection. We only want to know about the deliverance. We want to focus on those verses that talk about Jesus delivering me and Jesus coming and rescuing me and Jesus providing for me. We hear the apostle Paul is heralding the, the great beauty of being able to suffer with Christ. Well, we need to look at that. We need to understand that. And that's in fact why I've entitled this message, Are You Willing to Suffer? So let's look and see what he's saying here. Number three, fill this in. The exchange life results in a totally new person whose personal identity is in Christ. You see, we are no longer dead in our sins. You are no longer dead in your sins if you've come to faith in Christ. You're now alive in his righteousness. You're no longer under the bondage of sin. Jesus breaks the chains of canceled sin. He has, he has forgiven us of the sin and we are no longer in bondage to it. Notice the next one there. No longer is death your ultimate destination. It's now that you, your ultimate destination is eternal life in Christ. So this is a totally new identity. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 say it very well. Look at verse 1. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, you see that idea of you're now in Christ, you're no longer in yourself. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Look at verse 2. Set your mind on things above. He says it again. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For here's the reason, I've underlined it, verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's this beautiful picture that you're no longer just Andrew Coleman. You're no longer just Alex Hoppert. You're no longer just Marie Arias. You're something totally different. You're, you're no longer the person that you were born into this life in sin. You have been made the beautiful picture of what Christ has designed you to be from the beginning before the foundation of the world, to be his child, to be holy and blameless, to be obedient and righteous. This is a glorious picture. He's given you a new life in him. It almost sounds too good to be true, but thank God it's not. That is the message of salvation. Notice this. Number four, your identity in Christ means that you share in his death and his resurrection. You say, oh, well, I like the idea of sharing in his resurrection. I'm not so sure I want to be crucified. I'm not so sure. In fact, I'd rather not even die a nice, peaceful death of old age. I, I'd rather not go through that. Jesus, come quickly. I mean, you know, we can have this mindset of this. But if we really believe what the Bible says, if we really recognize the whole picture of God's grand plan, of course, we live in a fallen world. He is saving us out of this fallen world. And by faith, we get to live in this fallen world, showing our love and our joy in Christ and our trust in him. And then as time goes on, we see that he is moving and working in us. You see, again, Colossians 3, verse 4, we see this up in verse 3. It says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What a glorious thing for us to rejoice in. Notice this. When in love and commitment someone devotes themselves to another, they are willing to share in their life, in their suffering, and in their death. This is true love and devotion. Now, this is what Jesus does for us, ultimately. I mean, in the ultimate way. He dies. He takes the wrath of God upon himself for us. That is how much he loves us. And he calls us to do the same thing with him, but in a far lesser way, because he has already done the glorious heavy lifting. He calls us to live in commitment to him. Okay, where do we see this kind of total commitment? Where do we see this kind of identification? 
We see it in the soldier who stands and fights to the death beside his brother on the battlefield. That's where we often see this in this earthly life. And, you know, I can, I th- I can think of some of these great movies, uh, Band of Brothers or the movie of Hacksaw Ridge, where you see men who, you know, they start off in maybe boot camp and they're at each other and they don't really love each other and they're in fact competition with each other. But as time goes on, they go through enough together and they become brothers in difficulty. And before very long, you see them willing to lay down their life for the men that are around them, for the friends that are around them. And that, that is what we see Jesus, that's how we see Jesus loving us. The difference is he's the perfect, innocent son of God laying down his life for a sinner such as me or such as you. And so it's infinitely different um, when it comes to uh, the, the picture of his purity. But notice we get the concept here a little bit. Notice the next one here. We see this kind of love in the covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. Think about it. The vows that are said, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Now, in this earthly setting, this earthly marriage, we see that there's this kind of commitment that I am going to be with you in the good times and I'm going to be with you in the bad times. I am going to rejoice in the blessings and I'm going to endure the sufferings with you. That is what true Christianity begins to look like. It's not just that, oh, Jesus is an additive to my life to make it a little bit better. It's that, no, Jesus becomes my life, and I will be with him in the good and in the bad. Notice the next one that is here. Not only the soldier and covenant marriage, but number three here, we see it in the true friendship of one who stands with another in the midst of their shame. Occasionally in life, you may have a friend that goes through a very dark time and that even really messes up and maybe perhaps does something that's very shameful and the whole world turns against them or at least the people that are around them really leave them and turn against them. And what about the true friend that comes along and perhaps does not, um, does not approve of what happened but comes and stands with them regardless of the ridicule that others may level? My friends, that's exactly what Jesus does with us. And that is what true followers of him, the Bible tells us, will do with him. They will stand with him. They will be with him, whether it's popular or not. They will be with him. And the world that rejects and shames that, they will say, I endure the sufferings with Christ because I know what he has done. And I know what he has promised. And I know that I am in him. And so you can do what you may to me that will not change who he is and that will not change who he has made me to be in him. My friends, this is what Paul is talking about. He is saying, I am willing to suffer for Christ. I see that he suffered for me, and I am willing to go with him to the end, all the way to the end, because I know his promises are true. My question this morning is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to say, man, he did all this for me. He has made all these promises for me. I believe these promises. And so why would I not identify with him in this fallen world? Friends, the world will continue to reject him. And the world will reject those who are with him. But those who are with him will not be ashamed. They will stand in him. And one day when it's all said and done, they will say, glory, glory to the Lamb of God, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, this question should cause us to do some deep soul searching about our lives. And I I just want you to ask, ask you to settle down in your mind and your heart for just a moment. I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're driving. I don't know if you're in a living room right now. I don't, I don't know if you're listening to this message again um, after thinking about it the first time, but I want you to really consider this question. Ask yourself this. Have I been hidden with Christ in God? Like Colossians 3 says, you can look up there at the top, in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. In verse 3, it says, our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Is that you? 
Are you now hidden in Christ? Have you received Christ? Has he covered you with his blood? Has he covered you with his grace? Has he covered you with his presence? When God looks at you, does God see you and your sin standing outside of Christ? Or does God see the covering of his sacrifice over you? Does he see the sacrifice of Christ? Are you hidden in Christ? Have, ask yourself this. Have I so identified myself with or in and with Jesus Christ? How about the next question? Have I died to myself, my rights, my independence, my acclaims? The Apostle Paul had all these accolades, all these acclaims of his righteousness and all of, all of his personal value or my passions. Have, have I died to those things? Um, am, I, am I still caught up in these things? Or have they come and, and been put to death with Christ? Perhaps you may ask this question. Am I willing to share in his sufferings and his death? Am I willing to share in his sufferings and his death? You need to evaluate your heart. And perhaps, have I done that? You may want to ask yourself, have I done that? Or do I do that? The Bible tells us that all who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer hardship. It says all who are godly in Christ Jesus. You see, that's what happens the world rejected the holiness of Christ and all that he stood for and all that he said and all that he did. In fact, they nailed him to a cross. And in some way, shapes, or form, those who follow him are going to endure the same treatment. And so our question is, am I willing to share in the sufferings of Christ? There are some people who would say, oh, wait a minute. I'm into this Christianity thing because it helps me feel better about myself and I I, I have a more positive outlook when I hear about how much God loves me. And, um, I, you know, I, uh, but please don't ask me to add any more stress to my life. I already suffer enough in this life. My friends, if those are some of the thoughts running through your head, I, I just want to challenge you to ask yourself if you really know the Lord. Because those who know the Lord are going to have more and more the attitude of Paul in their life of saying, Jesus died for me, I'm going to live for him, and I am going to go to death in faith in him. Um, I trust him. You see, that's the attitude of Abraham. That was the attitude of Gideon. That was the attitude of the Apostle Paul. That was the attitude of John. That was the attitude of Christian martyrs who have gone before us that have said, you can't take Christ away from me. You can kill me, but you can't take Christ away from me or me away from Christ. You see, this is, the, this is the mindset, I believe, of true faith. Like so many aspects of our spiritual life in Christ, there are two elements of this, this idea of being willing to suffer for Christ and being in Christ. There is the already and there is the not yet. And so what do I mean by that? Well, first bullet point shows it here. The already is seen at conversion. At conversion, true Christians turn from self and sin and turn to faith in Christ. Well, that's the already. He's converted me. He's made me his. He's worked. Now, I didn't understand everything when I prayed to receive Christ in that building over there many, many years ago as a child. I didn't understand all of the gospel. I didn't understand all that was going to be required of me. But in simple faith, I I heard and, and saw that there is a consequence for sin and there is a Savior who will save us from that consequence. And if we look to him and call upon him to save us, that we will. Now, the, the only hope of proof of that salvation is that we would continue in Christ and that we would continue to walk with him. The Bible is very clear about that. Notice this, at conversion, true Christians turn from sin and self to faith in Christ. Now, they're not, they're not perfect, but the old is gone, the new identity has come, and they're now discovering what all that means in their life. Look at the next part. In daily life, true Christians are growing in Christ's death and in Christ's life. What do we mean by that, growing in his death? 
Well, they're growing in this thing of the mortification of sin or putting away of sin. They're killing the, the things in this life that are not of Christ in their life. They're, they're putting those things to death. They're considering their body dead to those things. And that's a process, and it's often a painful process, and it's sometimes a discouraging process. But true Christians are in that process. That's, that's part of what is being seen here, is that true Christians are in the process of dying to self and living to Christ, all by the power of Christ. So this daily life, true, true Christians are growing in Christ's death and in Christ's life, discovering how much he has saved us. Now, Philippians 3, 12 through chapter 4, verse 1 is what we're going to be going next week. But I want us to end uh, our time today with you just asking yourself, um, has Christ really come and changed me? Is he given me a new identity? And am I embracing that identity? Um, some of you can say, you know, not perfectly, but I am. I, I, I really see that Christ has changed my mind and my heart, and I am seeking to live with him and walk with him, and I'm on the upward path. Others of you would say, I have no earthly idea. I really don't know if he has come and exchanged my life. Friends, I want to encourage you right now to look to the simplicity of Christ dying on the cross for your sins and look at this and see his love and say, Lord, if you would lay down your perfect life for my sinful life, why would I do anything but receive that and believe that and trust in that? No longer do I trust in my earthly things and my earthly treasures and my earthly morals and everything else. Lord, I want to trust in your merits, what you have done for me. You do that by turning from your sin, repenting of your sin, and believing in Christ. Let's pray together as we consider these challenges. Father, we, we just ask that you would help us to evaluate our lives rightly. Lord, I pray that you would protect Christians at this moment from appreciating these things without appropriating these things in their lives. Lord, I pray that for me. Lord, I pray that you would help me to deeply evaluate whether I am truly putting to death the things that are not of you and that I am truly embracing all that is of you through faith in Jesus. Father, I thank you so much for laying down um, your son's life for, for us. Lord, I thank you that you would be so great and gracious a God. And I pray that we would lay down our lives, that others may see you and that others may rejoice in you, and that by our lives, that we would shine the light of Christ, saying there is a Savior who has come to save. Will you receive him? Father, I thank you that we can trust in you in difficult times, in the times of suffering in this life. I thank you, Lord, that we can suffer well because you have gone before us and suffered rightly. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who do just that. In the glorious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. I hope and pray that as you consider these words that you will um, discuss this with your family. I pray that you will uh, read these passages again over the next few days and allow God to be speaking to you. We will be looking at what it means to press on in Christ uh, in the coming couple of messages, and I believe that that will be truly encouraging to you. Sheridan Hills, let's talk for just a minute about um, the near future for our gathering times. I know that we're all asking ourselves, when will we be able to begin to reopen a little bit? Much does depend upon the recommendations of our local government. Um, we love and appreciate our local leaders. We appreciate our state leaders. And I know that they desire for things to move forward um, just as any of us do. Um, we also do recognize that sometimes the cure for a problem can be worse than the problem itself. And it seems that we are starting to run into that. Um, we want to be very sensitive to these matters. We know that some people will not be comfortable in coming back for a little while, and we want to be very supportive of that. That's why we are going to continue to do live streaming um, for folks that are in that circumstance. But we also know that 
For other people, the risk would be very low and perhaps even the risk of their participation would be low to society at, at large. And so we, we want to be aware of that because we know that we need to be together. One thing that is for sure, if you look at any events that are everywhere and all of the frustration of this, it's that people long to be together. They long to enjoy one another. And the church is no different. Um, we certainly, perhaps even more than most, desire to be with our friends and those who share our faith and those whom we call our family. So what we're planning is, as soon as we start to feel like it's the right thing to do, we will begin to um, very slowly and in small steps at first begin to reopen our times together. Um, we will be meeting here in this beautiful oak grove. God has given us a great location. Many churches can't meet um, for perhaps a long time because they have no outdoor space to do that. We know that things are much safer if, you're, if you are outdoors in open air and in sunlight with ultraviolet light. And so we're going to take advantage of that. Um, we will start off small and slow at first, but then as time goes on, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. Whatever we do, we will be practicing all of the good protocols um, that have been recommended to us. Uh, concerning distancing and not touching one another and all that kind of thing. You just need to start get that in your mind and in your heart that we want to be careful about that. And we just want to be, we, we want to be good citizens in every way. So um, praise God, we have um, good news that has been coming along steadily uh, as best we can tell. And it's probably not going to be nearly as long as it has been. And we can look forward to that. I want to encourage you as well to continue to get together online, whether with your growth group or your community group. Um, if somebody calls you from your community group, I want to ask you to really embrace their interest in how you're doing. Um, I want to encourage you to reach back to them and to begin to get to know the people that live nearby to you. Um, great, great things have already happened as a result of that. I want to encourage you as well to be really seizing this moment with your children. For those of you who have children at home, really starting new habits in your lives of praying together um, in the morning, praying together in the afternoon, praying together in the evening. Um, as best you can, begin to follow Deuteronomy chapter 6, where you um, teach your children to love God and to know God as you rise up, as you walk by the way, as you lay down. Make God's Word a central part of your conversations at the dinner table. Um, I want to encourage you to be doing that. Um, make the most of this time. You probably aren't going to have very much more of it. Things are going to heat up again, and if you can start some new good habits now, this is just the perfect opportunity. And purpose in your heart that when this passes over and when these days are finished, I'm going to be with my church family. I really want to encourage you to do that. Praise God for your giving and your support of the church uh, family. We know that it, God has called us to this great work. We believe that many folks are joined us now that are going to join us um, in person when we meet again someday. And we need the resources to be able to be prepared for that. So I just want to encourage you to continue to be faithful in your giving, trusting God in the midst of, yes, even uncertainty. Marcy and I are doing that, and I want to encourage you to do that. So praise God until Wednesday night. We, uh, we hope that you have a great and glorious week in Christ. And we recognize that this is a very special day for all of our lives because every single one of us have a mom. And we just want to just say to all of our moms, Mom, we love you. We appreciate you. We appreciate you risking your life to bring us into this world. And uh, we honor you on this glorious day. So in light of that, Happy Mother's Day!